be back to this very, very close fight that will take place in about six states and frankly in the suburbs of about half a dozen to a dozen a dozen metro areas in six states and the entire election will come down to about two to four hundred thousand voters. You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in US news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello, I'm Mari Kirk, Director of Engagement and Impact at the USSC. And before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're recording on today. The University of Sydney is located on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and future. We are one year out from the 2024 US presidential election. If we ignore the actuarial possibilities of something that completely derails the polling reports we're seeing, it will be a 2020 repeat of Trump v. Biden. What are Presidents Trump and Biden like behind the scenes and on the campaign trail? Um, has MAGA won enough of the hearts and minds of the Republican Party that it represents the new Republican paradigm? Uh, what's truly at stake in this election? To take a deep dive into these issues on the USSC briefing room, I'm joined by Chief Washington Correspondent for Politico, Ryan Lizza, and Washington Correspondent for New York Magazine, Olivia Nitzi. Ryan is host and executive producer of the weekly political deep dive podcast and has written for numerous U.S. outlets, including The Washington Post, The New York Times, and The Atlantic. He has covered every presidential election since 2000, and his reporting on President Obama won the White House Correspondents Association Aldo Beckman Award. And Olivia has also written for major U.S. outlets, including The Washington Post, Politico, GQ, and The Daily Beast. In 2020, she signed the Harper's Letter alongside Salman Rushdie, Margaret Atwood, Gloria Steinem, and other prominent writers and intellectuals. She also won the National Magazine Award for Journalists Under 30, and she was a finalist uh, for the National Magazine Award for Feature Writing earlier this year. Now, at the end of this episode, we'll get our by-the-number stat uh, related to U.S. presidential elections or coverage. Are you guys good to go on that? We got it, yes. Yep. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> well, let's dive in. Um, so I'd like to start off with former President Trump because you've both interviewed him before. So what is he like in that smaller, more intimate setting? Is, is the version that we see on TV similar to or different from the Trump that you met? It really depends. Um, I first interviewed him, I think in 2014, and I've interviewed him as a candidate, as president, and as a former president and as a candidate again now. Um, That's a lot of time. And, uh, circle of life. He, circle of life. <laughs> and he, I find when you see him up close, when there are a lot of other people around, he's pretty much just as you would expect, just as he is on television. Um, but when you're sitting one-on-one -on -one with him, he, sometimes you get him and he's very monotone. Mm. Um, not a lot of, inflection, not a lot of grandiose bloviating the way that he does on a rally stage. Um, almost frankly, seems kind of medicated, um, just flat. Sleepy Trump. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's weird because it's not exactly like he's tired. It's just like a non-responsive sort of um, 
flatness. I don't know how else to describe it. It's very jarring mm. when you encounter that Donald Trump. And then other times he's in a sort of charming mode where he's very avuncular, um, really wants your approval in the conversation, wants you on his side, um, and is sort of engaging you in that way on that level. Um, almost like a normal person might be at like a cocktail party, let's say. Mm. Um, and then when he's on the defensive, when you're asking him questions that he doesn't like, uh, I, that's when he's most like, I think the Trump that people are are used to in kind of popular culture and, and from what we see on television. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I would, the subdued Trump, and you hear other people describe describe this, it's a, it's a, it's a common thing. It's almost, I, th- I think most entertainers have this where, you know, you're, you're, you're used to seeing them on stage doing their shtick. And so that becomes what, the, the, what you associate with. So we all know that Trump, like the Trump of a Trump rally. Mm-hmm. And so when you see him up close or in person or in an interview and he's not fully embodying that character, it, 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 you uh, are taken aback at, at first. And it's like, wait a second, you know, mm-hmm. this is a whole different speed. And so that, that different speed when he's not fully embodying that character can be anywhere from just like Olivia said, medicated where you're like, he's almost, he's very low spoken and, um, a, you know, surprisingly, you know, a lot of people don't, a common critique of him is that he's not really interested in, in asking you questions. When really? That's a hot take, Ryan. <laughs> but, you know, but there's a little bit more of that, okay. you know, and he wants to find out, like we interviewed him jointly once and he was very interested in sort of like, you know, he wanted to know like, what's the deal with these two? Like, so he was <laughs> kind of, he, he had a certain curiosity, but he was, he was very low energy and. No one um, besides our family yeah. members, I think have asked us uh, if we're getting married and when we're getting married as mm. much as he did in that yeah, interview. He's like a gossip. But, yeah. He's a gossip and yeah. he like wants, he wants the dirt. He wants the inside scoop basically. But it's interesting you say that about, um, you know, public figures, performers, when you see them on a stage, I think Trump more than probably most other politicians or most modern presidents, he's so much more like Elvis than he is like, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> and yeah, so there's yeah. this sort of like almost, um, it's almost like, he gets his energy from the number of people who are around him and the fewer people who are around him, then the lower his energy levels are. That's almost what yeah. it's like. There's when, this sort of yeah. inflation relative to the crowd size. And if you think about this, this is very common with like, I don't know if you've ever seen a documentary about any rock star or any, I'm not trying to compare him to a rock star, but or, or any, <laughs> any uh, stage actor, mm. they have that, like they, they save all of the energy for, show mm. right so i think that's the big difference i don't even think is it's that he's saving in- it though i think it's that he's like he, he draws that energy from the people around him like that's why he requires a crowd and it's why he wants to do these rallies constantly even when there's no actual political justification for a mega rally right mm. even in times when there yeah. aren't actually campaigns he just wants to be out there he wants to be out there and he wants to be uh, i remember talking to his aides before the 2020 election um and he wasn't on the road much because of COVID. They were sort of doing these, I think it was in the period right before they started doing the rallies again. And even those rallies were sort of pared back because of the the pandemic. Um, and I remember his aides telling me that every day he was just calling and asking, what does it feel like out there? 
what do they feel like? Tell me like what the vibes are basically. <laughs> and I think he more than most people ever on earth and, and certainly more than most politicians um, sort of requires um, opportunities to pick up on vibes, frankly. And then, so yeah, there's like the, so there's like, now that we're talking about this for a few seconds, I'm trying to think through like the different categories. There's like the public Trump, mm-hmm. right? And that's like the, the MAGA rally Trump. There's the private Trump who can be like in air quotes here, normal. Okay. <laughs> and it's just like this kind of like gossipy, weird New Yorker. And, and then there's like interview Trump. Like when you start asking mm-hmm. him tough questions and he turns into this, you, you know, he, he starts you know, slinging the bullshit and getting his back up about every issue and jumping from one non sequitur to another and going into the diatribes and, you know, his sort of set pieces about any subject you bring up. And all in an effort because he's producing the interview in his mind, right? Well, that's like, going to be my question. Yeah. Is that is that an intentional yes. tactic on his part or is it a, like a just a response, a it's reaction? It's definitely intentional. And he flips between the two because I remember the yes. last time when we interviewed him together, I was just thinking this through now. Yeah. You know, he flipped between that just like, Calm, subdued Trump. And then you're like, so tell us, let's talk about the insurrection. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, just getting his back up. Yeah. Yeah. And you can tell where he's sort of gaming it out. And I mean, he's thinking strategically about how to manage the situation, how to manage the the show of the interview, basically. I remember he has this weird thing always when he's in interviews and sometimes in, in public too, where he just repeats himself over and over and over again. And I remember talking to our friend Maggie Haberman uh, when her book about Trump was coming out, uh, I guess it was last year, right? Confidence Man. Um, and she said, she finally asked him like, why do you repeat yourself so much when you talk to me? And I remember the first time I interviewed him, he repeated maybe a dozen times in the interview that he had made a lot of money in Atlantic City and he wanted me to tell my readers that he made a lot of, Mr. Trump made a lot of money in Atlantic City. And so I sort of printed it verbatim, you know, Mm. with all of these different uh, quotes from him saying the same thing. Um, And when Maggie, Maggie, I'm paraphrasing, which she told me that she asked him about it and he said, it's to beat it into your beautiful brain. It's just, the idea is if you're doing a print interview, if you Mm. say the same thing enough times to the writer, they will get the message that that's important to note. Or that's the only (laughs) thing they've said. And so there's only one thing to write. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Now, Olivia, uh, you in particular have had, you know, many personal interviews with President Trump uh, from your My Private Oval Office press conference interview for New York Magazine in 2018 to your interviews with him before and after his 2024 announcement, uh, including spending a fair bit of time at Mar-a-Lago. Can you take us behind the scenes a bit of the Trump orbit? Um, And how do these sorts of interviews come about in the first place? Um, Well, the the one that you're referencing from 2018, it came about completely randomly and I had no idea it would be happening. I just happened to be in the White House uh, for some other interviews and meetings. Um, and I think if memory serves, it was like some, some question or something I said in one of my interviews with one of his aides, uh, they called him or they went in to see him and told him about it. And he asked for me to be brought in. Um, and so I had like, you know, 15 seconds when between realizing what was happening and then sitting down with him. Um, and that one, I mean, that whole thing it was this weird orchestrated sort of play where all of these different people kept coming into the oval office and um 
it was like Trump doing a weird presentation. Um, and the point of it was to tell me that everything was going really well and that he was not about to fire his then chief of staff. Um, and of course, ultimately he did fire the chief of staff. Um, and you know, it was very strange and it sort of worked in, in one sense. I didn't write the exact story that I was there taking meetings about. Um, but it was very similar to, but it was very similar to like my earliest interview with him, you know, before the white house, before he was even running for president, uh, in 2016, um, when that was just something that he was sort of putting out into the ether as he always did, you know, for decades that he was maybe going to be running. Um, I remember I, you know, asked an aide to connect me and I called his secretary and she patched me through in a few seconds. I remember I was like in a cab when I was doing that interview. Um, it was just sort of very random and because he had an opening in his day because he can always find time to receive attention. Um, and then the more recent interviews, um, were really just a matter of reaching out and, and asking if he would do it. Um, he, uh, had not yet publicly announced his decision um, last summer mm-hmm. about whether or not he was going to run. Um, and he sort of used the opportunity with New York magazine to say that he had already made up his mind, but that he was not yet ready to tell us whether or not he was going <laughs> to run. Um, and then a few months later, um, this, uh, I think it was in December um, of 2022. Um, it was just at the beginning of this presidential campaign he had already announced at Mar-a-Lago and it was this sort of sad, strange event where some of his family members were not even in attendance. He's just sort of surrounded by yes men and kind of the, the Z list of the kind of <laughs> MAGA orbit. Um, and he was very defensive and, and uh, very worried about the perception that he was all alone at Mar-a-Lago and not running a real campaign. But at that point he really was not running a real campaign and um, was just sort of at home waiting for things to take off and trying to avoid prosecution. Well, and here we are. And he was very (laughs) angry about it. Yeah. He was very angry about it in the end. And Ryan, I think one of the things that was so unsettling about the Trump presidency was that it directly followed the Obama administration was so completely different. Um, And you've got a lot of experience in reporting on the Obama administration. Can you contrast what you saw of President President Obama with what what then followed with President Trump? Uh, The ways in which Trump disrupted every norm of American politics, um, that's a long, long list Mm. when it goes to relationships with the press, to how he dealt with Congress, to how he communicated with the American public, to his personal um, uh, decisions about staffing Mm -hmm. his administration, to how he dealt with and and treated uh, allies and non-allies. So, you know, basically everything uh, about the presidency was a a break with the recent past. Mm. Um, you know, he was a normal, well-adjusted adult. Trump? 
Obama. <laughs> Are you kidding? Um, <laughs> Obama, right? And then I mean, and then I, you yeah. go to this person with a personality disorder and probably one of the weirdest people mm. in I, history. Yeah. I will say the thing that I used to not really believe, but I think in hindsight is true, is that the, the a, one of the critics of Obama that anti-Obama and anti-Trump conservatives would like mm. to make is that the celebrityification mm. of the American presidency that maybe you could argue Obama, it, re it reached its, its peak, but you know, of course there were presidents like Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton, right? Everyone is the celebrity culture of America and the mm. leading into our politics is a long running thing. But I, I would say a lot of like people that they argued that, you know, Obama helped usher the way for Trump in that, you know, he was this like uh, media star more than a, a political, a traditional uh, political animal. So, you know, you could probably debate that and maybe that's unfair, an unfair comparison. Uh, but that is, you know, that's one way in which maybe there was some, some continuity and just how celebrified our politics has become. Mm. Right? And I, I mean, I mean, so in Australia, president Obama was, massively popular yeah. yeah like i i i wish i had the stat right off the top of my head but it's in polling it was something like he had an 80 or 90 percent approval rate with you know the australian yeah. audience like he was so popular biden is not on he's not on <laughs> that, that level, that, that yeah. level. Yeah. i mean he's you know they they um prefer uh you know biden to trump but i think i think the, the the almost like approval rating he has in from our survey that just came out is Similar to what we're seeing in the American public, like I think. Oh, interesting! In really? I think oh. so. I should. Oh. Wow, that's interesting. That's really interesting, actually. Is yeah. Well, to, to, so know. because I mean, obviously, in general, Australian politics, they're more comfortable with the kinds of things that would be considered socialized healthcare in America or things like that. Like there's there's the daylight between the two parties and right. the major parties in Australia is far more narrow than what you have in America. It's and in general, it's fascinating to watch. Um, there was a debate mm. on Sky News to watch a, uh, a conservative host attack uh, a politician for not sufficiently uh, supporting the safety net here. Mm. Where in America, that would never happen. I mean, yeah. it just would never happen where you have a conservative saying we have to better fund or uh, better run our, our safety net and help the elderly. I mean, you are more likely to have a conservative politician like push an elderly person down a flight <laughs> of stairs in America than argue something like that. So that has been fascinating to watch in the couple of days that we've been here so far. I think I understand the interest in American politics here in Australia is because your politics is so settled and civilized compared oh. to ours. <laughs> you know, mm. I, I, it's I, our soap opera because of compulsory <laughs> compulsory voting. Yeah. You know the extremes seem to be seem limited. Uh, the fact that your districts are drawn by professional committees rather than completely gerrymandered. Yeah, it's very different. And Actually, if you guys went to the equivalent of uh, you know the um, the DMV, but here it would be. Yeah. It used to be the RTA, or now it's in our state services, New South Wales. But <laughs> there's a concierge. That meets you when you go in and they, they assist you and help you find you. There's a computer screen. Oh, okay. You do this. Click this button. Oh, this is a, a service. The fact that there's even some, like a con the word concierge is yep. used yeah. at the DMV is amazing. I will say I've been to the DMV, DMV many times in Washington, DC, and it's a relatively painless uh, experience. So it's that, that, you know, some states have that figured out and Washington is one of them.
But I feel like that. I feel like that <laughs> does skew the yeah. <laughs> Australian perception of government, and if government yeah. is running something, yeah. is different. If Americans, right, if right, Americans right. thought, oh, if they run our hospitals, our hospitals will be like the DMV, right? And that's terrible. That's a horrible idea. Whereas in Australia, they're like, this is great. We love it. Why yeah. wouldn't you? You have a you have lots of examples of the government running things well. Yes, what you're saying yes, and that's and so and there's general support, and that builds trust. And we saw right. like, why everyone was happy to get vaccinated you had like 95 percent vaccination rates and things and you pay right. for this too with high taxes yes you do yes you do fewer hospital bills yeah. <laughs> um, now olivia uh we currently have a biden presidency whose approval rates have consistently hovered around 40 percent for the last two years similar to what we saw with trump but i believe he had more volatility is what we're seeing in biden with biden's approval rate impacting his approach to the campaign trail this time around or is or do you feel like it's like you know slow and steady or it's similar to what we saw in 2020 well i mean i think in 2020 um it was just a campaign against donald trump Mm. right um with a with a big primary field first um that he had to get through Uh, a lot of candidates who at least the media thought uh would be viable people like people to judge or Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren, or for a brief fleeting, beautiful moment, Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> um, and uh, so it's, it's different. I mean, at this stage, it's obviously quite different because the democratic primary on the democratic side, <laughs> sorry, because the democratic primary um, does not really exist um, in, in that way. We have uh, Dean Phillips, a congressman, who, from my uh, home state of Minnesota. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> um, who just got in. Um, I, I don't know, Ryan, is there polling on that yet or, or not externally? You know, I, since we've been here, I have not seen a poll of, uh, I mean, I think most of the polling is going to, it's going to start with New Hampshire because that's where he's making his, his, his claim. But, um, but not yet, right? By the time this comes out, there might be polling, but as of yeah. us sitting here recording, and there just hasn't been yet. much polling in general of, of the Democratic primary because yeah. it barely exists. And, and you know, the other candidate there is Marianne Williamson, who's polling at 10, 11 percent uh, nationally against Biden. Um, and the White House, obviously, at least is pretending that they don't really care or not uh, paying much attention to either candidate. Um, there's not really a path forward for either candidate because of the DNC rules. Um, no one can get delegates in New Hampshire. So even though you have these candidates on the ballot, um, it doesn't make a difference. Um, but in terms of how he's approaching it, I mean, if it is indeed uh, Biden versus Trump again, I think the argument will be pretty much the same. I think the only difference is that, um, you know, there are some legislative accomplishments that Biden can talk about now, whether or not that that could really motivate um, voters, whether or not voters know what the CHIPS Act is. uh, I think that's a different question entirely. And I think, you know, it's been a pretty volatile couple of years economically in America, um, a pretty volatile couple of years in general. Um, and I, I don't know how compelling, um, those sort of, uh, those sort of legislative achievements that maybe have not, um, trickled down to have real life effects on people when they're going to a grocery store that's, uh, hit by inflation and they're struggling to kind of just get by every day. I don't know how much that will really matter. Um, but I think if it's just a repeat of 2020, um, the messaging will be pretty similar. I think it might be more like 2016, though, in some ways. 
um, than 2020. If you don't, you don't have a sort of organizing uh, crisis like the pandemic. Um, but I don't know. What do you think, Ryan? I agree with all that. Um, I think the, the approval rating issue is an interesting question because I think, you know, if you're Dean Phillips, who has decided that Democrats are making a huge mistake, that Biden is very, very vulnerable, that the, the, it is true that these polls show, you know, serious reservations, even among many Democrats, about his age and whether he's the best candidate uh, to, to nominate. Um, um, and so that's what drove Phillips to get into this race is that the Democrat, you know, democratic elites and elected officials are, have sort of closed ranks around Biden and they're ignoring this, uh, an electorate that is saying, no, we, we don't want this. We want another choice. This is a bad idea. Um, and, you know, I think the view from the Biden world is this is what happens to every incumbent president at this point. You know, they have challenges and we just live in a world where no national politician stays popular. They all sink down into the low 40s at some point, um, just as Obama did, just as Trump did. And this is sort of the world we're living in now. Um, if I may, I mean, it's not as if people voted for Joe Biden last time because they loved Joe Biden. They just can't get enough of Joe Biden. <laughs> it, you know, the pitch from Biden was in part vote for me. So you can sort of forget about the fact that there is a president for a few days. You don't have to mm. wake up terrified about uh, what Check the Twitter feed. Exactly. Um, there will be at least an adult in charge again. Um, and, and people can sort of breathe a bit easier. Um, so I don't think, I don't know. I, I don't, I guess it's like, yeah, they, they all get less popular, but it's never really been about enthusiasm for Biden so much as it's been uh, enthusiasm for not Donald Trump. Yeah. And so last question before I get your by the numbers stat, but in a Trump v. Biden matchup based purely on campaigns, I guess they're, campaign ability more than even electability um and not based on what we see in the polls but just based on like the campaign trajectory that you see for both of them who do you think would come out on top i mean it's hard to separate donald trump from donald trump's campaign right so all of the messaging all of um the narrativizing comes from him um and i i mean i kind of believe in his ability to advertise so I guess I would rate him pretty highly. Trump. Yeah. I would say the last time around, um, just on purely, I'm, I'm trying to narrow your question down to the, the campaign tactics and, and nuts and bolts. Um, it did, uh, this, I, you know, this is sort of an easy one to call in hindsight because Biden won. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, uh, if you just look back to who made more mistakes and was better organized on a number of metrics, you know, Biden was, I mean, just one small thing, like Trump discouraged vote by mail, right? <laughs> which, yeah. which definitely hurt him in 2020. Mm. And it does seem that's like an organizational thing, right? That's a candidate thing. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it does flow from him. Yeah. And it, um, it does seem that what we're, what we're seeing right now in the, in the primaries is that, um, 
Trump has a more quote unquote professional campaign operation, mm-hmm. certainly than he did in the primaries in 2016. Huh. Um, but for context, the campaign operation in 2016 was like three guys yeah, <laughs> and so. a clipboard <laughs> and two of the guys are now in jail. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think you have to assume that there's going to be two campaigns where both parties, and, you know, I think by the general election, a lot of the doubts among Democrats will be much, much lessened. You know, there's 75% support among Democrats for Biden right now, which is historic, that's low. I think the electorate will polarize, Democrats will come home to Biden, they'll be very united around him. Similarly, all the uh, Republicans will be united ar- around Trump and we'll be back to this very, very close fight that will take place in about six states and frankly in the suburbs of about ha- half a dozen to a dozen a dozen metro areas huh. in six states and the entire election will come down to about, you know, two to 400,000 voters in those places in the, in the suburbs. And, um, you know, it will, it will be, uh, in that sense, uh, a bit of a replay of, of 2020 with the one big question mark being third party candidates. Uh Cause I think the difference between 2016 and 2020 that often doesn't get mentioned is people, voters who really didn't like Hillary Clinton and really didn't like Donald Trump, um, they broke for Trump at the end. Mm-hmm. He was kind of the, the the more unknown quantity and sort of a, a sense of, ah, I'll give this guy, I hate them both, but I'll give this guy a shot. Mm-hmm. And some of those on the left had um, a Green Party candidate to go to if they, if they didn't like Hillary yeah, Clinton. Yeah, Jill Stein. Exactly. In 2020... The big difference was those those um, those uh, anti-Biden and anti-Trump voters broke for Biden, huh. and there was also no uh, third-party option to for them to to park themselves. So I know a lot of Democratic strategists point to this fact as really really important, and. Um, it leads me to my by the numbers. Yeah, well, I was going to segue there anyway. So yeah, what have you got for because, us? Because uh, you know, because so Democrats are worried about a, a third party on the left, um, and you know, Robert Kennedy Jr. is uh, is running as an independent. It's not easy to do that. You'd have to get on the ballot in a lot of states, and, and that's hard to do. Um, but the number I was going to throw out for the end here is twenty two percent. And that's a new, as we sit here, at least new Quinnipiac poll. Uh, Kennedy is is polling at 22% in a three-person race with Biden and Trump. But interestingly, he's drawing, according to that poll, he is actually drawing more from Trump than Biden at this point. And I know that was the big question is who would he pull from more? Because in American elections, really you do have the spoiler effect with the third party candidates. Yes. Um, and so it's like, well, who is he spoiling it for? And it's just so interesting. Is it Kennedy? It's He's wild, a Democrat right? until yeah. what, a month ago? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pulling more from Trump. There you go. I'll be interested. So, so we'll watch his trajectory. We'll watch that, his trajectory. That he's polling way better than, you know, DeSantis or Nikki Haley or anyone. 
Yeah, in a three-way. I mean, they're, those guys aren't being, those kind of aren't They're just in the GOP. Yeah, I know, but if you were to throw them in the mix. But you're right. That's a higher number than than they're getting against Trump in a primary. So as a third-party candidate, so it's, you know, so that's a dynamic to watch. How about you, Olivia? What stat have you got for us? My number is 91. It's the uh, number of charges filed against Donald Trump in the four criminal probes uh, into his conduct in Manhattan, uh, in Georgia, and the two federal cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and those charges, uh, how they play out, will determine whether or not he becomes the nominee, perhaps, um, and certainly whether he wins the second term at the White House. So all of our attempts to predict what's going to happen over the next year, um, we sort of can't do that mm. until we have some clarity about how these cases will play out. Yeah. And that really is the number hanging over all of this, isn't it? Yeah. So what effect is that going to have on the, it still could have an effect on the Republican primaries. You never know. Um, it hasn't yet. Well, it has had an effect. It's had a positive effect. Had a positive yeah. effect. Well, well, anytime something's <laughs> going wrong for him, it's just like, man, maybe you should get indicted again. Like <laughs> he's going to start you know? finding opportunities. Yeah. yeah. He's start committing petty crimes. Like. <laughs> well, well, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. Um, and as we wrap up, I'd like to point out a couple of other podcasts that may be of interest. Our USSC live podcast runs breakdowns from our major live events. Uh, which means coming up soon, we'll be sharing the recording of uh, Ryan and Olivia on our panel discussion from the Sydney International Strategy Forum. So keep um, tuned in for that. We also have our breakdown of the GOP candidate presidential debate. Um, And you can also check out our technology and security podcast, TS, run by the inaugural director of emerging technology, Dr. Mia Hammond-Airy. You can find these on our website at ussc.edu.au or wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan and Olivia, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so thank much. You and so thank much. you for um, having us at um, this August institution. We really appreciate it.